Contourcast. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined as ever with my lovely mustachioed co-host David Jameson. <laughs> it's good to be back. I'm just back down from the Highlands. Uh, Why did your voice go all high there? The Highlands? <laughs> uh, because it was great as everyone knows. We we're just talking before I came on about Everyone always comes back from the Highlands of Scotland like, oh my God, it's so beautiful up there, despite the fact you live like a few miles from it. Um, but it is, uh, is obviously uh, a wonderful place, um, which is why it's uh, full of white settlers. Um, I mean, it is like, I, I'm in danger of going a bit Alistair Gray here. Hmm. sidebar I do love Alistair Gray but do you remember when Alistair Gray said that thing about how Scotland's cultural institutions were all run by English people oh, yeah. and people went berserk people went mm-hmm. genuinely like off the scale with the reaction to that a different mm-hmm. it was a different time right yeah. um but we're in danger of going down that route by saying that the uh the highlands are full of white settlers yeah. But they are, right? And it's not, we're not talking just about English people, um, Americans, but also like very well off Scottish people moving up there. Exactly. So, I mean, that that influx into the Highlands, and it must be said from other parts of um, uh, Europe, and there are different types of migrants in the Highlands because, of course, there are quite a lot of um, like Polish people and Eastern Europeans in the Highlands because they are they're the workers they're working in the tourism trade right, but the 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 proper kind of white settlers are people escaping from, you know, urban lifestyles into usually retiring retiring into uh, the Highlands. But it is incredible. Like so, we walked the Great Glen Way, right? Um, and I hasten to add, everyone we met was wonderful. And the thing is, as well, of course, is. Uh, that, that's not to say that those things are like phony or something like they are real close-knit communities up there that don't exist in like a city setting right that's all still absolutely true but I was interested by how many people we met there who had just moved up to the highlands as well and it, and it sort of returned to me remember I wrote that mad article on the website where I reviewed a film about the Bruderhof <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that people. was a weird article, David. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. <laughs> um, I'm very interested in this because I suspect we're gonna see a lot more attempts by people to escape like the modern social order. And that can take lots of different forms. It can take like weird religious forms of spirituality, or it can take political forms, or it can take, you know, various types of lifestyle. And one of those is fleeing to a kind of what is seen as like a remote wilderness like the the highlands is unusual in the british isles for being seen parts of ireland as well as being seen perhaps wrongly as a wilderness you know there's this whole Mm -hmm. debate about that um the highlands has been like brutally transformed by the rise of first industrialization but it didn't end with like industrialization but the, the rise of industrial capitalism in britain totally transformed the highlands um perhaps more than any other landscape like people often think that like the city is what capitalism looks like but the countryside in any capitalist society looks totally bizarre like when you remember what it should look like hillocks and forests and wild rivers and i mean the whole countryside of britain should you shouldn't be able to see it 
you shouldn't be able to see the ground in Britain. It used to, you know, until relatively historically recently, it was basically all forest. Um, the highlands used to be all forested. Uh, and it's unrecognizable even from, say, 200, 300 uh, years ago. Mm. Anyway, uh, but I find it fascinating that people are attracted to that deserted landscape. Um, but they go up there, like, the loads of people that we met up there had only lived there for like two or three years. And I did think to myself, particularly with the English folk, is that are they fleeing Brexit? Are they Brexit refugees? Are they fleeing that that kind of atmosphere, political atmosphere? Um, because you, like, if you're in pro-independence circles, you see a lot of this kind of stuff, right? Which is probably not very representative of people saying, you know, take us with you when you leave and all this kind of stuff, right? But I think it takes different forms. I think exhaustion with the English political context, the wider social context, it takes different forms. So one guy we stayed with was an ex-army guy. He was great. He was ex-army, ex-Met police, right? And he had retired up to the Highlands to, to start a and b right? And he reminded me, by the way, this is quite sick, of uh, a cultural attribute of right-wing middle-class people that I quite like, which is that you could tell he's the kind of that guy who's going to be working 14 hours a day until he dies. Do you know what I mean? Kind of obsessed yeah. with work discipline, right? I mean, to do, to, 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 to operate one of these B&Bs is an insane amount of yeah. work to be doing yeah. in your retirement, right? Um, but anyway, his move to the Highlands, I could tell that he felt like, and I think this is the bit that Scottish nationalists resent, I've done my time, I've worked hard for the state, I'm entitled to my chunk of the new Eden. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That was that was his, I, I felt that was his unspoken attitude. This is mine. I have earned this. I have earned the Highlands. Um, but then I met other people who were very obviously liberal. Um and who I suspected were more kind of I'm out of here variety, right? Um, so yeah, I think you get I think you get different categories of middle class people fleeing. Interestingly, but this is probably just an, a function of their economic position. Anger at the Scottish government was quite widespread, but I suspect that's to do with lockdown. I suspect that's because yeah. these people have just set up businesses in the Highlands and now they're just getting wrecked. You know what yeah, I mean? I mean, I think like particularly that, like the whole tourist industry across Scotland, like all of these small enterprises um, based on the tourist trade usually run by um, people who are not local, um, you know, they will be, be hit hardest. But I think what you're saying about like this idea of the Highlands as this great wilderness um, that's always been like raw and vast and empty is like, do you remember when one new year we were, when we were in Arisig on the West Coast and we walked from Arisig along the Rue Road. And when you walk along the Rue Road, like on the, um, the left-hand side, there is just, it looks barren you know, this real wilderness and there's rocks and it's overgrown. Um, and on the um, the other side, you have the sea and it's like incredibly blue and it's really just a very beautiful and brutal place. 
But along that stretch of road, there were about 400 families that lived there mm. that were forced off the land. And I feel like part of our, our like understanding of like Scotland as a nation, like we've really lost the rootedness um, and the story of Scottish capital that is told through the Highland clearances. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I feel like we, we've still peaked at the cultural moment of um, the Cheviot, the Stag and the Black Black Oil, the John McGrath play from the 1970s, which is if people haven't, um, haven't read it or haven't seen it, you can actually watch it on YouTube. It's an incredible piece of like storytelling. Um, it's a, I mean, I think it's described as a, like a Cayley musical drama but it tells the history of Scotland and it talks about the clearances um, and the clearing particularly of Highland Crofton farmers to make way for the, the Cheviot sheep. And it's a very emotive piece, but the, the narrative that that play builds, um, like the evictions, the violence of them, like the Duke of Sutherland, his factors, but really it's based in the fact, the, the actual historical fact that the expansion and enlargement of the estates of English and Scottish capital, where there was more money to buy more land, is like that is the driving material force behind these changes. Um, it then like reaches out into um, an analysis of the Highland, how the Highland regiments end up defending the British Empire. And it tells us a lot about our own history, which, you know, people, I see people on Twitter are going mad about the banning of all these anti-capitalist books in, in schools. I mean, there was never any anti-capitalist books in, in my school, but like this, I think, like the Chevy, the Stag and the Black Black Oil is one of the core texts about the development of Scotland. And then of the last part of the play is about um, oil and American influence, which we've talked about on the pod before. Mm. Um, so when you were talking about that, like I still feel like that—that that is the go-to like cultural text that talks about the clearances, the highlands, the landscapes, the people who lived there, and what happened to them, and how that impacts like our lives now um, as as Scottish people, um, and we haven't really got haven't got more than that at the moment yeah i agree and I, I i suppose i tend to think back to like sunset song and you know that's explored a lot there as well the transfiguration of the landscape yeah. the felling of trees to supply the first world war and stuff like that and that's sort of beautifully woven into the forest and the people are destroyed together they're kind of burned together um yeah i, I find all that stuff fascinating particularly because the highlands is so morphic like it, it physically changes so much over time as capitalism is brutalizing it and brutalizing the people uh who who live on the land i mean it's ripe for kind of literary mm. you know exploration yeah it is ripe for that but like this thought always occurs to me um obviously we've mentioned alistair gray on this pod already just in passing and by chance then john mcgrath and you're talking about a uh, sunset song and honestly, I think apart from maybe the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, I can't actually think of serious and significant pieces of Scottish literature that are not fundamentally about class. 
like I think that we have this great canon of literature where class is such an important thing do you know what I mean like it's it's often like it might not be the driving plot force it may not be left wing that's not my point Mm -hmm. but class is more often than not a central element of Scottish literature and Scottish literary output um I've just finished reading Shuggy Bain of course yeah you know this book no Shuggy Bain Shuggy Bain so it's uh, been shortlisted for the Booker Prize Mm -hmm. it's by a Scottish writer Douglas Stewart I don't think he lives in Scotland anymore but it's about a boy growing up in Glasgow in the 80s it's I mean honestly it is do you want your heart to be ripped out and maybe cry yourself to sleep? <laughs> Do you? Uh, well, I did tell you that time I watched that film, Precious. So, you know, obviously that's... Uh... Sometimes. Sometimes you want someone to come along and tear your heart out, yeah, stamp on it, um, and make you cry big, sobbing, heaving tears. Uh-huh. Read Shuggy Bane. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But but also, of course, class famously is quite a theme in like Scottish comedy and stuff as well. Aye. I mean, it is interesting that Scotland's a, 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 a country with a culture which is relatively class conscious. I agree, not necessarily politically radical or, or whatever, but it is very kind of, I don't know what that says. I don't know what it says that our sense of national identity is quite built up with ideas about social class. Yeah even though people want to pretend it doesn't exist anymore. I was speaking mm. to um, our good friend and comrade, Pete Romand, um, who's also on the Quantum Editorial Board, who's going to be our producer on the pod. We are get, I mean, we're maturing as a podcast. <laughs> and we're getting a producer, aka someone to whip us into shape and actually make sure that we have a timetable for getting the pod out. Um, he was telling me how like he has been interviewing people for his PhD and like people in Scotland and blah, blah, blah. And he, he has interviewed people, political activists in Scotland who are basically like class is an old way of thinking about things and it doesn't matter anymore. And what matters is like gender and race and sexual, like sexuality, these and, and gender identity, like as a separate issue. And um, these are the things that matter. Classes for like these old guys, classes for your John McGraths and his plays about sheep and oil. Um, yeah. And what the new like trend, the young thing is like, it's um, identity politics. And I remember this being a very prevalent attitude on the left about 10 years ago. Yeah, the funny thing about, I see, I'm really interested in that because I would love to argue, with, I would love to debate someone who's actually willing to come out and say that. Like, I feel that a bit like the Highlands has been fucking terraformed by capitalism. I feel like political debate has been so pounded by those ideas. Like, it's it's now just an insidious idea. No one will fight for it. Like, I, ca- I can't find someone to argue with about why class is out and why a series of other um, characteristics or identities or whatever are, are the prevailing... Um, hmm force in society i would love to have that argument but you would struggle to to get someone into an argument about it they'd rather leave it unexamined they wouldn't they, would, they don't want to defend their thesis that class doesn't matter anymore um, i want someone to come on this pod and yeah. i want them to make that argument so yeah 
you know, like listeners know where to reach us. If you've got a suggestion of someone who wants to come on the pod and make that point, then um, yeah, tell us. Like we will, we will have them on, and we will have a very respectful, um, political debate. Mm-hmm. Speaking of debates, yeah, I, I I did end up staying up to watch some of the uh, some of the clash of the titans last night in america um which was like i mean it, it was as bad as i think a lot of people were expecting um i remember um uh, yeah i couldn't sleep so i was watching it in an ipad an ipad in bed sort of variously giggling but also just sort of feeling depressed you know what i mean i mean if you know this it, this it, that's fear material uh sitting watching trump and biden debate at two o'clock in the morning um I, th- I see that people are using the word of 2020, which is unprecedented <laughs> in relation to the debate. Yeah. Um, all of the, the the major news outlets are calling it an unprecedented oh, debate I, I, and showing yeah. it in comparison to previous presidential debates. Um, so what I what I I've watched seen- I watched highlights. Yeah. So what I watched from what I've seen from the liberal response, basically, like the Guardian and Axios and um, the New Republican sort of American journals like that, mm-hmm. is they're all they're all talking about how it was really aggressive, and that's the standout uh, feature. I now it was right. It was unpleasant. I think that's a little bit self-serving. I think that they're saying that because they don't want to admit that. Um, uh, that Biden did very poorly um, and came across as exhausted and lackluster and a bit confused. So there's the, there's a weird thing about um, Biden and the run-up to this, to the debate, which is people said, well, sometimes he's a total disaster, especially when he's freewheeling it. And then sometimes like his, his speech to the Democratic Convention, the sort of online Democratic Convention, he scarcely put a syllable wrong. Right now, I dare say that's because he's he can read a teleprompter. But you know, sometimes he is very lucid. Sometimes he's completely all over the place. And so a lot of people were saying, um, "Look, you 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 know, you're very likely to get a, an on-form Biden that day. You're like his team will make sure that he is whatever well rested, well versed, well prepared for that debate. On the other hand, Trump's team, it is true, were overhyping his proc." problems with cognitive ability because Trump's been campaigning on it um, in the election. So they set a very low bar for Biden and he didn't quite meet that bar, but he was still really bad. He was, I mean, this is the thing is like, I feel Trump's team set the bar too low for themselves. Like that's what they essentially did is that the fact that Biden didn't shit himself on stage meant that the night was a success for Joe Biden. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was like, oh my God, he hasn't had like a complete meltdown and started like smelling people's hair or saying random words. Yeah, talking about his legs uh, or whatever. (sighs) Um, Saying things that meaningless noise. He did, he did still fuck up all over the place. He just, he just, he didn't, Sometimes when you see him in an interview, you can see he loses it and he loses it for about 10 seconds. And that's bad, right? But even in the debate last night, he still said things like, 
uh, Trump's killed 20 million Americans and, and things like that. He still said things that were just all over the yeah. place. Yeah, but, um, I, but we're kind of, we're past the point of anyone caring if anyone is saying accurate things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no one no. cares anymore. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, I thought, I thought the worst thing for Biden was not just that he looked incoherent, he was more coherent than some of his performances, but he did look very weak. So Trump was able to shout over him a lot, disrupt him a lot. When Trump would interject and break up his little sections, he'd get lost. He'd lose the thread of what he was saying. Man, like, it was criminal, right? I, it, do you know what I thought? This looks like an incident of bullying in an old people's home. He, Trump looked like- Trump is like a sort of um, super, he's a super camp nurse. Do you know what I mean? Who's like, like bullying the old person because they won't go to their bed on time? He's like like nurse ratchet, right? Or I thought like That's such uh, a such a good take, David Jameson. <laughs> no, but or or I thought maybe he's like the alpha male in the old old people's home, and he's roughing up confused Joe Biden and taking his lunch money, right? He can but, be at the alpha male, but he's still incredibly. He's a mean girl. We've talked about this. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's dead. He's just mean and yeah. like bitchy and like quite flamboyantly camp with his like nippiness, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I dare say that William Golding would agree that if you set <laughs> uh, that if you set the the events of Lord of the Flies not on a desert island with children, but in our in an old people's home deserted of authority, that's the sort of hierarchy that would establish itself. Donald Trump would be chief of Lord of the Flies in an old people's home, right? And he'd be cr picking on or crushing with a rock, like Piggy, um, Joe Biden. Um, and, and like- <laughs> the, the beautiful mental imagery. <laughs> no, I mean, it was bullying. It was bullying straight. And I, there was a part of me that started to feel really like motherly and defensive for Joe Biden. I like leave to, him alone. It looked like a six-year-old picking on a four-year-old, yeah. right? Yeah. But in the in the bodies of our adults, and I wanted to rush in and say, like, to Trump, no. Do you know what I mean? Like, we don't behave like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, it, I mean, it was it was sad at, at, at certain points. But the the overriding feeling I had, and I've had it repeatedly during this election campaign, is does anyone think, right, and you can say if you like that, that this is not a relevant thing to, th thing to think about modern society, does anyone think that the founding fathers wanted this to be the social order, right? Um, what you have here is two um, egotistical, um, psychologically and mentally past it oligarchs, like these are two men who are members of the same social class. It's a very corrupt, degenerate social class, and they are very two very corrupt, degenerate images of that social class, right? They have, you know what I mean? It kind of makes me feel like those weirdos in America who join gun clubs and go and prepare for Armageddon in the countryside, right? Like the militias and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to sound like them, but like... George Washington would overthrow this version of the United States. George, George Washington would refer to like Thomas Paine and say, this is not a democratic order. Do you know what I mean? Like this is, this is, the, the, this is the generated past 
any vision of America which its founding generations had imagined. I mean, surely the main problem for the Democrats is going to be motivating people to vote in this election. Yeah, I mean, and, and I because suppose... I, I'm honestly like, if I was in America, like you couldn't get me near a fucking voting booth. Like then, seri- seriously, like how can you legitimately say to people that you have to choose between these two individuals? And I, I have a suspicion that if Joe Biden wins, it is going to be catastrophic for the, the radical left. Like absolutely, like, I mean, in, within the Democrats, they will be dead and buried. Um, there are also catastrophic, catastrophic consequences for the left of Trump points. So I don't know how in good conscience people could make that decision. Do you know what I mean? It's like the same way that I felt about Brexit in a lot of ways, you know? Like put a gun to my head and just fucking pull the trigger because I can't, like I look at the balance of forces of these two sides and I see capital behind both of them. Like pull back, pull back the mask of Biden and Trump and it's, it's just capital interests that are being driven here. Yeah, and, and to make it more complex, I, I think there's always a problem when people look at someone like Joe Biden and say, well, he's going in the right direction, but he hasn't gone far enough, and that's our critique of him, right? Our critique of like Biden or Hillary or Keir Starmer is it's not good enough. No, like so, see someone like um, Biden, he represents like a very specific attitude about how America should, should be ruled. And it probably is the majority opinion on the American capitalist class. Of course. The American capitalist class, by and large, probably want Biden to win the forthcoming election because he's a more coherent option for them. Now, I'm not saying that the more chaotic option for American capitalism is better. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, how do you choose between the chaotic option and the coherent option? Yeah. I mean, this is the the truth of the matter is, is that actually, like, I think that capital interests find Joe Biden would be like a more, would represent their interests in a much more stable way. But like, like Trump is not the big protectionist that he pretends to be. Like in any way, like he didn't drain no swamp. Like, (laughs) you know, so actually like what we are seeing is shades of the same system pretending to be at war with each other, shout over each other in a debate like it's combative and confrontational and it's a real clash of ideas and it's goodies versus baddies. But if you just for a second pull back that curtain, these are men from the same class and they represent the same interests. Here's here's, Here's one thing that occurs to me about these two is on even on policy terms, and I'm not talking about who would give more money to, or who's got this or that healthcare plan. I'm talking about the direction of the American empire, you know, internally and externally, right? Who would be more economically protectionist? I'm not sure you could say for sure it was Trump. Who is in the next, you know, four years, who is going to be more pro-war? I'm not sure for certain you could say it was Biden. Do you know what I mean? So like, even on the, so Trump famously is, all of a sudden during this election campaign, he's rediscovered that he's an anti-imperialist or something, right? That he's like an American isolationist, right? He has, him and his record abroad 
has been, for example, drone strikes. He's massively increased the number of drone strikes on, on Obama, right? So it, even trying to predict um, on those key registers, for example, of the direction of American capitalism, it's all down to factors. It's not down to who's, who's you know, it's not down a lot to who's in charge here. Either both Trump and Biden will escalate tensions against China in the next few years. That's just a thing that's yeah. going to happen. That's that's caked, that's baked into the world system now. Like that's baked baked uh, baked into the direction of American imperialism, and that direction has a great deal more influence on what happens in the next few years with the United States than either Biden or Trump. Perhaps the most interesting thing is what happens if the election's really close in America, and the system enters into gridlock. I mean, that might be the most interesting outcome. It could also be the most dangerous outcome. There's a serious danger of a major constitutional crisis in the United States, a crisis of a type that it's not prepared for. Um, and that, that could be interesting, because one of the things that did happen in the debate was Trump made it quite clear that he is going to fight a Democrat victory. Yeah. Um, we're not talking about, like, because you get people saying, like, he's never going to leave the Oval Office, he's going to barricade himself in, and he's going to use the army or some shit like that, right? If Trump loses out, outright, if he loses the popular vote and the the actual presidency, mm -hmm. right? He'll be gone. It's a ridiculous idea. Listen, no one in Washington wants Trump to be there. <laughs> this is the thing. Like people seem to imagine that he's got legions at his command. He doesn't. Like the state doesn't like him. A very interesting book out from a Republican strategist who refers to the Republican Party as the stable state, right? and mm. says, and basically says, there is a deep state and we are undermining Trump, right? So, so bear with us, bear with the Republican party, right? See for all that that's, uh, people like Steve Bannon, Donald Trump reduce that down to a really simplistic conspiratorial idea that the logic of the deep state, that is a thing, right? Yeah. And they don't like him. And there's no way he could use the state to hold on to power if he wanted to. All that stuff about how he's a Nazi and he's not gonna relinquish power is ridiculous. What the interesting question is, if the election is decided by postal votes, he will say this is a conspiracy and the Republican legal team will fight on that basis, will fight against postal votes. And, he, and, and they will make an argument, like the broader Republican base will make an argument, if we can lose this election on postal votes, we can lose a lot of elections on postal votes. So yeah. he might be able to marshal the Republicans to hold on under those circumstances. So I mean, I think, personally, I find any talk of postal votes very, very triggering. <laughs> it took Scotland, at, I mean, I think people are just getting over the postal vote conspiracy oh, from 2014. Yeah, God. Like, just, like, I, I went to independence meetings where I was handed dossiers. I got a dossier. Same Did you get me. a dossier? Yeah. I got a dossier. And I wonder if it was the same one, because there's quite a lot of them going about. It was all about like how the postal votes were fixed. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, the radical left in the states, like, you better get down on your dossiers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that is that's a fucking train wreck. I mean, that it is a real mess. And um, so the result, I mean, the in terms of like who won the debate. I think that the polling afterwards was like 68 Biden of those who watched the debate, 23 Trump and the rest neither. Um, 
but the pro and the like there are a lot of stories um in the press today that are talking about that like it's, it's almost like an exit poll from the debate i guess um they're talking about that and really trying to claim it as a victory for biden mm. forgetting of course that who watches these debates it's yeah. free i mean it's guys like you under their duvet with an ipad giggling exactly yeah <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's people. It's it's predominantly young people. It's predominantly young people at college. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Her, her college students who are watching that debate. It's not the general general public. I mean, gen- yeah. Do you remember watching some of the debates in the lead up to the last UK general election? Uh, they're awful. Yeah. Do you not just remember info, Boris yeah. Johnson saying the phrase "oven ready"? <laughs> yeah. I I have fucking nightmares about that. Like Boris Johnson in my dream standing there with these huge like oven gloves on, just being like oven ready. I think it's because I'm 35 and I'm starting to get to that sort of like you should be getting pregnant age. And he's just going oven ready. (laughs) 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 Welcome to my mind. (laughs) Oven ready Brexit baby. Um, (laughs) uh, Has anyone called their baby Brexit yet? Uh, you'd hope so. Uh, I mean, you'd hope if if they had, we'd already have had it on this podcast. Um, but the UK debates were like a complete nonsense as well. Yeah, and I yeah. think that for Trump, there's nothing really to lose in that tactic of just being like really belligerent, talking over Biden, like just disrupt, 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 because the people who watch it are probably not going to vote for him anyway. Yeah, so so I mean, for my watching of it, um, I think Trump. Uh, I mean, you could say he won. It's it's hard to say because they both came across appallingly. Um, like Trump was genuinely bullying Biden. Biden was just sort of weak and sort of getting pushed around. I I mean, I don't like see that polling. That must be heavily skewed by who's watching it because there's no way that anyone objectively coming into this could think that Biden had won it. He looked silly. Um, but I also imagine that some voters probably were slightly disgusted by Trump's uh, behavior. Um, so, I mean, it, I, I, I think that's probably nonsense. I think that it doesn't bode well for the future debates as well, that Biden was quite weak. Um, but yeah, wh- whatever, to be honest, I think that any fair-minded person would probably say that, that, neither came out of it particularly well, but that, um, uh, that Trump won. I mean, he, he could string a, a long sentence together, kind of. Uh, so, um, but, but yeah, and I also wonder how much these debates really decide things. People have been saying of these debates in America that they are quite important. Um, only if Biden can be shown to be incompetent. Yeah. And that could that could still easily. And happen. I mean, whilst yesterday he looked weak in the clips that I watched, he didn't look incompetent. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't soiling himself or making those weird noises or sucking anyone's finger. All yeah. real things which have happened. Yeah, yeah. In public, Biden has sucked various, you know, fingers. <laughs> he sucked his <laughs> wife's finger in, in public. No, was it not his wife's? Oh no, it was uh, he introduced his wife as his sister. And his sister is his wife at the same time, yeah. But no, there was another time when he, yeah, uh, yeah sucked his wife's sister, his wife, <laughs> sucked his uh, <laughs> wife's finger. 
Exactly that, my sister very that would have been yes. that would have been spectacular and uh, um, I looked it up that there's a story in the express reputable news source a boy named Brexit no way yeah it's a, what's his it name is, what's his full name and um, well his parents funnily enough are, are German um I don't know, but there's like a picture of him with a EU flag. It looks like it looks like he's on one of those like Ramoner demos. I mean, it can't be real. The Express also do a lot of stories about UFOs, so I'm a little bit cynical. Yeah, I don't understand how people like the Express get around press standards. I mean, it is full of stuff that they have totally invented. Oh yeah. Completely. They they still do a lot of um, they still do a lot of Diana stuff. Yeah. Um, they do a lot of UFO stuff. Um, they also go quite Alan Partridge at times. So like on their on the front page of it today is like there's a poll and the, <laughs> you can vote in this poll and the poll is called Does Prison Work. <laughs> Which I think is a very Alan Partridge debate topic. Yeah, you know, is prison when is, good? Is, yeah. is prison too good? Yeah. Um, it reminds me of that bit in Alan Partridge where his girlfriend, his Eastern European girlfriend, Sonia, is like, but Alan, you say prison is like holiday camp. <laughs> <laughs> when he thinks they're going to go to jail for tax evasion. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So good, man. Yeah. <laughs> My uh, my favourite newspaper in Britain is, of course, the uh, the Daily Star. Yeah, I mean, kind of similar uh, in a way. Similar, but deeply psychedelic. Is, is yeah. So so what what's what's appealing about the Star? <clears throat> um, mostly just their front covers. The front covers really invest in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of stories about seagulls, seagulls being maniacs, killer seagulls, evil seagulls, and they talked about on here. Will have also oh, we have the cannibal gulls. I could have sold that to the staff. You could have. I oh, no for real, right? And people who are listening, have a look at some uh, front covers of the the Daily Star. It's always featured in the what's on the front pages bit of the BBC news website. Um. And they will have like on the front page, they'll have this story about the the gull menace. And then they'll have like photoshopped seagulls like all over the page. It's kind of like the viz, but yeah, news, but definitely not news. Mm-hmm. It's the viz masquerading as news. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, so- it's more subversive than a remake of fucking spit an image. Oh Christ, that looks so shit. Um, I love that kind of aesthetic though with the star because that's there's something very British about that there's something yeah it's the it's the great British like sleazy seaside aesthetic Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there's a there's a there's an an edge of surrealism Mm. there's an edge of something very strange and and almost unsettling amidst all the kind of jovialness Um, yeah it's 
it's a good paper, as Alan Partridge would say. <laughs> um, and also the thing about the star is, if you are fed up of the front pages of every newspaper being about coronavirus or Brexit, the star will they give you a break. Yeah, they like, never have I, that shit. Like, you go to their website today, right, and their lead story is, um, it's top fear. Paddy McGuinness nearly died after attempting Top Gear's most dangerous stunt yet. <laughs> It, the Daily Star is basically a seaside, a British seaside holiday from reality. Yeah. You heard it here, a massive contrast endorsement for the weird, wacky world of the Daily Star. And I would now like to announce that we are uh, setting up a, a special subscription with the Star, 50% off if you're a contrast listener. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's true. We we are being sponsored by the Daily Star <laughs> after our um, exclusive on the gull menace in Scotland. Yeah, the cannibal gulls. Wait till we get onto them about the squirrels. Oh yeah, because you were attacked. I was attacked by a squirrel. Mugged Jumped. by a squirrel. Uh, jumped that's, out that, that's a bit like a star mugged off by a squirrel. That's that's a classic star headline. Yeah. Um. So we. We talked on the last pod about getting some guests on and I can confirm we have a couple of guests lined up. David, you're looking wide-eyed and confused. No, 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 I, I, I'm excited. Are you, are you excited? I was going to make a wee dun-dun-dun type noise. That's good. Um, so we have, um, we're going to have journalist Kevin McKenna on the pod. We're also going to have MSP Neil Finlay on the pod. Um, and that's over the next few weeks. So we'll be having some chat with them um, separately, not all of us together. I think that would just be too much. Um, so yeah, if you've got any particular questions that you want to ask, um, then let us know. And we'll probably not ask them. <laughs> Excellent. Do we have anything else to say? Just uh, to tell people to check out George Caravan's article on the oh, website. Yeah. George has got a new article out and um, it's the second part of his SMP at the Crossroads piece. Uh, it's very good. Um, it's quite like, I think it leads down a challenge to the independence movement. Yeah. Um, In many ways, the first half like it appealed to people on the on the basis that it provided people with an explanation for mm. why Scottish politics has become so weird, like why we're permanently heading towards independence, but everyone kind of knows we're not. Um, like I fucking hate that phrase gaslight, you know, that gaslighting thing that people say I'm being gaslit by Trump or whatever, right? I think there was a famous article called that Trump is gaslighting a nation. Um, but like it really is a phenomenon in, in, in Scotland that absolutely no one, probably including the First Minister, really knows where we're at with independence, except that we're permanently moving towards something that's permanently moving away from us. Um, so, like, George Kerevan's article, the first half kind of explains the backdrop to that, and the second half sort of provides some uh, some provocations about what we could do next the most interesting idea from my perspective is and i think that this is a 
this is a really interesting angle to explore is the attitude of setting up a kind of a broad democratic front in Scotland for national self-determination, which I think it's interesting that that hasn't been offered up by anyone in Scottish politics yet, because that's traditionally the way home rule politics worked in Scotland. Someone would organise a mass petition that would get two million names or something calling for at least the vote on whether or not we should have a Scottish parliament. The, the way in which politics has changed since 2014 has kind of ruled that out. Um, and yet I, I can't see how there's not a great need for, for that kind of effort. But anyway, um, it's very worth the kind of checking out for those, for those arguments. We'll check it out. Um, you can find it on the Contour website, uh, contour.co.uk. Um, there you can also donate to Contour. Um, we're starting a really kind of intensive fundraising drive. Um, so if you do enjoy the pod or you enjoy any of our other website content um, and you have some money that you would like to throw our way, it would be very put to very good use. It won't be like spent on pizzas or junk or anything like that. 